News Talk 1110-993 WBT. The Pete Callender Show and uh, the number 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. We're going to talk with Becky Gray from the John Locke Foundation at 1.30, as we do on Fridays, to get a recap of the legislative session. i got to tell you, though, not a lot happening this week up in Raleigh, which is fine by me. There was a lot of other stuff happening that I could focus on. <laughs> um, so we'll touch base with her, though. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Andrew Dunn, and he writes a newsletter called Longleaf Politics, which if you're interested in state politics and state government and uh, issues, uh, I'd recommend it. It's a free newsletter, Longleaf Politics. I think it's on Substack, I want to say. Um, but Andrew Dunn used to work for Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. And he had a piece some time ago. It was actually back way back in November back when the political reporter for the Charlotte Observer, Jim Morrill, retired. And um, the and, and Andrew Dunn used to work at the Observer, at the business desk. He was a business reporter. And uh, he worked with Jim Morrill years ago. He says that uh, he was an intern, I should say, on the business desk. Jim invited me over to his home. He treated me with respect. He showed me the ropes. And when I came on the paper full-time, Jim was always a friend. When Jim called sources, he asked for a conversation, not canned statements. He listened and he tried to understand. He sought to be fair. He got to know his subjects as people and operated with humility and confidence. Jim picked up the phone when it rang too, always willing to talk things out. Jim was in it for the reader and in it for the long haul, and it showed. That's why so many people are pouring out praise as he writes his last stories. If these things sound simple, they are. But it's just not the way political reporting works anymore. We're stuck in a toxic cycle that cannot be undone. And one that leaves everybody uh, the worse off, I think he says here. I missed that. Frustrated. Sorry. Everyone frustrated. Turn the page too soon. Everybody frustrated. So he talks about shrinking staffs, deadline pressure, click goals. I've actually worked uh, in an environment where they put the, uh, you know, they put up a big screen and they track all of the clicks of everybody's posts in real time. Oh yeah, so that stuff. And uh, th- this is uh, this software, this platform is in newsrooms, national newsrooms. So everybody is looking at this board, looking at the stories that are getting shared, that are getting all of the the traction, that are going viral, right? He goes on to say later in this newsletter that uh, most reporting from mainstream outlets these days is done by email. When a reporter sends you a message, they typically already have their story written and sometimes even published. They just want a statement that they can tack on to the end. The story is completely conceptualized beforehand by the reporter or the editor or both, especially the headline. The reporter's task is to simply fill in the quotes and the facts needed to back it up. Now, I know as I say this, there are, you know, there are people in newsrooms, they're listening, and they're like, that's not true. Right, but it kind of is. It, it, it kind of is. But even if you are trying to approach a story with an open mind, the reason you are approaching that story is because you've already talked about it with a whole bunch of other people in a setting where the news department discusses what stories to cover. And in that very process of how do we cover, or sorry, of what stories are we going to cover, you get you get a whiff, at the very least, if not 
actual direction of how to cover the story too. You get, but you you most certainly are determining whether to cover a story, and in order to make that determination, you got to sell it, right? You got to sell it. It's got to be, um, it's got to be done. Well, you have to pitch the story, and enough people have to agree with it. That, that and enough people in the news department, the editors, whatever, like they have to believe that this is something that's worth the time for them to edit or for you to go cover versus, you know, some apartment fire. <laughs> I mean, like that's seriously like there's only so many stories you can go cover. And if you're going to be presenting some ideas, like I want to cover this. And I mean, this is like every reporter knows what it's like to be pitching a story to the bosses, trying to get them to go along with your idea. Cause you think it's going to be a great story and they disagree. And so you just don't get to cover the story, right? That happens all the time. All the time. Now, and one of the nice things about being, you know, a a seasoned veteran reporter is that as you become more, you know, trusted in all this, then, you know, people just in the newsroom, they defer to you. That happens, too. You've been on the beat for a very long time. Like, I'm sure I have no idea, but I'm sure that Jim Morrill, when he was at the Observer, I bet he could go in and be like, these are the stories I've got. I'm going to go cover them. And like, all right, Jim, you know, because they trusted him and his judgment, his news judgment. Okay, but a lot of times. You've got these meetings that occur where they're determining the coverage plans for the day, and then they direct people to go out and do the stories. But in those discussions, in those meetings, you get an idea of what the story is going to be. And that's what Andrew Dunn is talking about here. It allows bias to seep into the coverage. He says there's little to no chance that anything a subject says will actually change the story, in any kind of material way at least. Right? There's precious little pursuit of truth and even fewer open and honest discussions. And I think this is what we're all kind of getting frustrated with in COVID, right? Is that I want to hear the actual debates about the scientific literature. And I want to hear it from people that know what they're talking about that are credible. I don't want to hear it from Andy Cohen. I'm not saying she's not credible, but I'm saying she's not credible. She's not credible to talk about the actual science of you know fluid mechanics and whether they get through the uh, the masks. She be, and and how do I know that? Because she doesn't. She never talks about the stuff. So this is one of the part of the frustration. When stories are covered, what stories are covered? What questions are asked? Who gets treated skeptically? How stories are framed? How headlines are written? Who's the bad guy? Right? All of these types of of uh, uh, angles come up in these discussions when determining what to go cover for the day. As newsrooms have gotten smaller, they've gotten even more liberal, too. Yeah, they've they've become more and more liberal. Particularly in North Carolina, reporters have been conditioned over the past decade to view Republicans with suspicion and Democrats as the valiant underdog. Why? Because the Republicans have been in control now since 2011. Uh, 10 years and you got a lot of reporters who are liberal but also haven't been on the beat they haven't been on the job very long and so this is all they know and so they look at the republicans they're the ones in power and so they treat the democrats like the valiant underdog all right we'll have more of andrew dunn's piece in a minute first give a minute probably less to boomer von cannon he'll tell you all about the traffic Talk 1110-993-WBT. Long 
Leaf Politics is the newsletter. It's written by Andrew Dunn, former reporter. I think actually he's because he worked for Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest for um, I don't know how many years. It was a while. And um, and I think now he's doing some freelance work, maybe or or he might, he might actually be on staff now at the Carolina Journal. Um, but he used to work at the Observer and he uh, wrote a piece several months ago about the vicious cycle of modern political journalism. And um, he talks about how a couple things, but uh, he talks about the business model and how it rewards gotcha headlines. It does. I was literally just talking with the producer during the break, producer Ryan about, you know, writing headlines and uh, having, you know, uh, words that turn up in searches and that sort of thing. He says for years, media outlets have rewarded page views more than any other metric. In-depth, even-handed dives into policy simply don't get enough page views to justify the investment of time and energy. Which, by the way, it's one of the reasons why I love radio so much and why I wanted to move from being a reporter to a host all those years ago was because you get to go in-depth on all of this stuff and the audience actually wants it. It's true. Like, that's the best part. You can have these long-form discussions, and you can hear, I mean, we did to start the show, right? We had Pat McCrory on, and you can hear him as he's discussing it. He doesn't know the questions I'm going to ask him, so there's this, you know, there's a, there's, I call it, you know, you're, you're uh, working without a net. He's walking this tightrope, because he doesn't know. I could have blindsided him with, you know, some crazy question, but I don't, I generally like. I don't feel the need to do that. I don't play gotcha journalism. I, I I never have, but that's a lot of people do, and it's easier to do when you're not actually talking to somebody or looking them in the face. Um, much easier to do on Twitter or on um, email. And he goes on to say, journalists use Twitter and Facebook to gauge what's already getting attention, and then whip it into a news article to pump back on Twitter and Facebook. Conflict, outrage, partisanship. They thrive on social media. The facts will always be twisted to further those ends. Um, he says uh, one of the examples is that Madison Cawthorn. No, not that he had a knife on the bottom of his wheelchair the other day when he went into a public meeting. It was, yeah, whatever. Um, it wasn't that. No, he did, he opened up to a reporter from a publication called Jewish Insider. This was back in November. And... Uh, they talked about all sorts of stuff, and he talked about, you know, election night and his tweets, you know, cry more libs and all that. Um, but he also talked about evangelism. And uh, he says the uh, in this toxic ecosystem, the uh, the folks on social media took his comments about evangelizing in the Jewish community, and they turned it into hit pieces that garnered a much greater reach than the original article did. Because he talked about how he has discussions with people of the Jewish faith and how he, as a Christian, tries to evangelize to them and how it generally does not work. <laughs> I think that was the nature of the piece. And this was several months ago. That's, oh, I guess, wow, okay, a long time ago. Well, almost a year ago. My apologies. It's been a while. Um, but Dunn distills in this piece the problem, he says, this is likely the, the biggest factor of all. Playing nice with the media used to be required because they controlled the best means to communicate at scale. And that's not the case anymore. It's not the case anymore. This was what made Donald Trump 
so unique, right? He could go right around the media. He could tweet at uh, his uh, at his followers and also the media, but at everybody. And he didn't need to go through somebody like me. You know, Pat McCrory doesn't need to go through somebody like me to talk to voters anymore. I recognize that, which is why I appreciate having him on the show, and we'll we'll talk about stuff. And I that's why I try to you know treat people fairly. I always have tried to treat even when I was a reporter. Norman Mitchell, when I got laid off all those years ago, uh, Norman Mitchell actually sent me a letter wishing me the best of luck and offering me assistance if I needed anything. And, like, Norman Mitchell is a big Democrat, county commissioner. I thought that was very nice of him. I always treated him fairly. It's what he told me. So um, there's a piece here, though, and I'm going to get to this. uh, I'm going to get to Ron DeSantis because this connects. The way Ron DeSantis has been treated by the media is exactly what Andrew Dunn has described. Exactly. The monoclonal antibodies is the just latest example of it. So that's that's part of it. The Union County School District and that fight and this threat of litigation from Mandy Cohen is another example of it. Um, but social media, where is this piece that I had? Social media. Do, 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 do. Oh, did I get rid of it already? Did I move it? Did I? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to bring you this story because this is also related. Sorry, I got lost in the now scattered stack of stuff a cybersecurity attorney known for his work advising hillary clinton's 2016 presidential campaign got indicted for lying to the fbi this is part of the u.s special counsel john durham's probe into the origins of the fbi investigation of ties between russia 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 and former president donald trump's campaign michael sussman a former partner with perkins cooey the law firm Hillary Clinton's law firm, Mark Elias's law partner, guy represented the Democratic National Committee and Clinton's campaign. Guy got indicted for making false statements during a September 19th, 2016 meeting with former FBI General Counsel James Baker. 2016. This is five years ago. This guy has now finally been charged. Five years ago. Why did it take this long? This is what I mean when I talk about blue anon instead of QAnon. The left has their conspiracy theories too. They just get treated as legitimate by mainstream media outlets. It's the biggest problem right now. So many people in the media, they just go along with this garbage. They look at the Democrats as the valiant underdogs. If not, they're activists with bylines. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Joining me now is Becky Gray. She's the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work at the Carolina Journal, carolinajournal.com. That's the publication of the John Locke Foundation. Uh, hey, Becky, how are you? Happy Friday. Well, I was going to say happy Friday to you, too. <laughs> um, yeah, every Friday's happy, right, Pete? Indeed. So um, it's rare that the legislature does work on Saturdays and Sundays, right? So... Uh, you usually get your weekends free, I want to say, although this week it seemed like pretty light load as compared to what we've been dealing with, kind of like drinking from a fire hose for the last six months. Yeah, and, you know, what we've seen is several bills have sort of gone underwater, if you will. Um, you know, we're still waiting on the budget negotiations, and although, you know, there's dribs and drabs that we're hearing of here are pressure points, here are things that they're considering, we really don't have a lot of news except that they are working to work out the differences between the House and the Senate 
and then also looking at some things that the governor may may want in, may not want in. You know, they promise that they will take that into consideration before they send that final legislative budget over to the governor to veto. And then, you know, a couple other things, Pete, the, um, there was a big energy bill that was proposed. It was one of those big stakeholders bill mm-hmm. where, you know, Duke Energy, the, um, the solar folks, the renewable folks, um, the manufacturers, um, a lot of 30 stakeholders were in a room and crafted together an energy bill that passed the House. It's come over to the Senate, and I don't want to say that it's hit a brick wall. It's just hit someplace where there's a lot of negotiation with it. Um, Senator Paul Newton had a hearing on that bill where he gave folks an opportunity to express their concerns with it, and there were lots of concerns from a lot of different angles. So that bill has kind of gone underwater again while we understand that there are some differences worked out there and some compromises and just to to work out so that that is a a really good bill moving forward. Um, We've also seen the medical marijuana bill kind of, you know, again, I don't want to say hit a brick wall because there's always room to move things. Um, That bill has passed the Senate and is sitting in the Senate Rules Committee right now. And then we have a couple of gambling bills, in addition, that had been pretty controversial. The online sports gambling bill, which may resonate with a lot of our listeners as we get ready for another big football weekend, um, but that one seems to have re, um, hit some heartburn over in the House, is what we're hearing there. So there's there's a lot going on, but there's not a lot that's going on in the public <laughs> that we're seeing right but it's it's kind of you know we're kind of seeing the ripples in the water and knowing that there there's something under there we're just not sure yet exactly what it's going to be right so when you say it's gone underwater you mean that it's 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 submerged we know it's there like you say you, you can see the ripples something will be coming back these bills are not dead like especially the energy bill i can't right. imagine that this i mean because the republicans made such a big deal about this when uh they uh, when they deep sixed or they submarined the um, uh, the the uh, nominee for uh, what was it, Secretary of Energy, right? Wasn't or no Environmental Resources, rather uh, right. that, that Governor mm-hmm. Cooper yeah, had the named first, the first nominee, yes, right. the governor had, and of course, of course, a lot of that was around her response to the pipeline negotiations and where that was going, and if we were going to get the pipeline through North Carolina for natural gas. So, you know, Pete, as you point out, there's a lot at stake there. We really are at an energy crossroads in this country and in North Carolina as to what direction are we going to take. Are we going to go with the most efficient, most accessible, least cost energy sources, or are we going to take a left turn and rely more on some of the, uh, the, the less sustainable energy sources with wind, solar, that kind of thing. You know, there will be there will be a mix, but it's what that mix looks like. And as a fiscal conservative, I certainly lean on that side of that mix being heavier with natural gas, nuclear, those sources that are less expensive, they're more reliable, um, and we got plenty of it. So right. as and if you think about it this way, Pete, the cost of energy drives everything. And you talk about an economic driver or an economic killer as we try to attract manufacturers, 
try to encourage businesses to increase their capacity to hire more people, to build more buildings, that kind of thing. You know, the cost of energy is one of the things that a lot of companies take into consideration as they're making the calculus, you know, whether it's lower taxes, um, property costs, schools, quality of life. You know, one of the things, particularly in the manufacturing sector, that people really look at are energy costs. So this is a real, these are really important decisions that have to be made. And again, what we're seeing, I hope, is um, going in the direction of nuclear, natural gas, those kind of sources that cost less are readily available. And that really, in my view, should be driving what the energy policy is. Yeah, well, I remember from uh, one of the hearings, the discussion about um how North Carolina just does not have a lot of pipelines. And that's why whenever there are these disruptions, we get hit so hard because we haven't built the infrastructure to move a lot of uh, natural gas or liquid product uh, through and around the state. And so we rely on just uh, these two major pipelines, basically, uh, one for each. Yeah, and yeah, if, if you just look at the map of North Carolina, you can see that reflected on where you know, the real economic hubs are. And, you know, there's these vast areas in the eastern part of the state and the western part of the state where, you know, for whatever reason, and I, I will argue that energy availability and energy cost is one of the drivers that those folks look at. And so you can see in the areas of North Carolina where they're struggling, we're struggling, we want them to be competitive, we want those communities to grow, you know, what you're seeing is a lack of that energy resource there. Yeah. Becky Gray, Senior Vice President for the John Locke Foundation. Uh, Reader work at the carolinajournal.com, carolinajournal.com. And uh, short week, so we'll let you go early. You can uh, knock off for the rest of the day. Sounds good. I think they'll be back at it next week. Although, Pete, I'm telling you, I'm hearing that they may be here well into October. Oh, my God. So you and I'll have, you, you and I'll have a lot to talk about <laughs> in the coming weeks. All right. Have well, a great weekend. Sounds good. Thanks, Becky. You too. Appreciate it. That's Becky Gray. And this is Boomer Von Cannon. He talks traffic. Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, September is. And if you want to help kids that are battling childhood cancers, the best way to do that is give blood. Okay, maybe not the best way. Maybe, I mean, but it is one of the best ways, right? I mean, I don't want to limit if you're, like, looking for all sorts of ways to help kids, then definitely try other things, too. But one tool in the tool belt should be donating blood. And platelets. I do the platelets. And, uh takes a little bit longer i'm not gonna lie but i'm also a double donor so it takes twice as long anyway and so when i do the double platelets though they they spin the blood and then they mix it with some uh i think saline solution they put it back in the body and then they do another round so and the platelets are really really valuable so uh you can be a part of uh helping kids fighting cancer Second annual WBT Little Heroes Blood Drive. It's on Thursday, September 30th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., 10 to 3. So come on by on your lunch break or something. And um, it's going to be at the Community Matters Cafe, which is uh, the Charlotte Rescue Mission, uh, their cafe. And so if you go there and you, you know, get something to eat or drink, you're going to help them in their life-changing work as well. The second annual WBT Little Heroes Blood Drive. It is 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. set uh not Saturday, it's September 30th, it's a Thursday, and you can get all the details at wbt.com slash events. All right, so uh, this attorney, Michael Sussman, former partner with Perkins Coie, he represented the DNC, 
He represented the Clinton campaign, and he represented a cybersecurity company, and he just got indicted for lying to the FBI back in 2016. Let's see here. It's part of the uh, the Durham investigation. We finally are getting an indictment. Oh, yeah, because the last one, what was the other guy? The guy, the guy who lied, the lawyer in the FBI, right, who lied to the FISA court to get the uh, the warrant against uh, Carter Page, who, you know, not for nothing, CIA asset. And the CIA told them, hey, one of our guys. And the FBI was like, we're just going to change that to not one of our guys. And then they went to the court and lied. That guy, he got probation. He's getting probation. So that's the other thing to keep in mind here, too. Like this lawyer, do you think this lawyer is going to serve time? Do you think this lawyer is going to be destroyed for lying to the feds like Mike Flynn was? This this is the second criminal case that uh, Durham has filed, the special counsel John Durham has filed since former Attorney General Bill Barr tapped him in 2019 to investigate U.S. officials who probed the Trump-Russia contacts, which never actually happened, right? Like, Trump did not have the contacts. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, at the beginning, and I know I wasn't here, so people don't know this, but when this first started up, when Trump first won and they were like, we need to investigate, we, you know, I said, look, and I basically was like, look at Paul Manafort. Like, that guy is shady, okay? Shady. And I said, if this is a guy in your orbit, and now there are all these accusations that uh, there was some sort of uh, deal-making or uh, back channels with the Russians, then, yeah, I want to know about it. I want all of it to come out. And as more of it came out, it became very obvious, like, oh, you guys, you're corrupt over at the FBI. I'm sorry. That's the obvious takeaway here. And for your corruption, you get book deals and CNN talking head jobs. That must be nice. I mean, that must be nice. I, I would have no idea. Most normal, regular people have no idea what that must be like, where you could lie to the FBI as a member of the FBI. You could make up a whole bunch of stuff. You could target political enemies. You could lie to Congress. Like, honestly, like when Peter Strzok is talking about the text messages with Lisa Page, I watched all of that, all the hearings. And when he's asked, oh, when you said, don't worry, we'll stop it. What did you, and Trey Gowdy is cross-examining Peter Strzok saying, what did you mean when you said, don't worry, Lisa Page, we'll stop it? And Peter Strzok says, oh, I meant the voters will stop it. Horse hockey. Bull. This was the insurance policy. Everybody knows now. The only people who don't understand what went down here are are like Democrats and the media. But I repeat myself like that. They're the only people that have just put on the blinders and refused to see that they there are people that still believe. I believe it's now. I'm not sure what the latest polling trend was for this, but uh, there were like at one point it was like almost two thirds of Democrats believed that the Russians put Trump in power. And that was never true. But because they set up a couple of Facebook groups. Do you know, like, you you would have a better shot 
manipulating the outcome of elections by manipulating the Google search results. This is groundbreaking research that was done several years ago now by a guy named Epstein, not that one, different one. And uh, he did all this, uh, Richard, I believe was his name, and uh, or is his name. And he found that you can manipulate, if you just, if you put positive search results for candidate A at the top of the results page that come back, most people, it's like 97% of people only read the first link. And like 80-something percent, if I remember correctly, they'll read the first two. And then that's it. Like, nobody reads past the first two links. And nobody goes to another page. Nobody looks past the first page for search results. So if all the stuff at the top of the results page is all positive for a candidate, people come away with a positive view of that candidate. And if it's negative, they come away with a negative view. And, by the way, the research showed that they can actually swing entire elections. They did it in their modeling. They literally did it. And you know who's the most susceptible? Republican women. Republican women, the most swingable cohort of voters. Republican women. So do you think maybe that might be a little bit more important than, you know, I don't know, the the idea that a couple of Facebook groups that ru- that some Russian people set up. By the way, one of those uh one of the groups was here in Charlotte. It was like some uh what was it? Uh Black Matters or something. It was like it was like a I don't know, they, they they keyed off of the Black Lives Matter name and they changed it up somehow. And I remember reading the story about it where the guy was like, "Yeah, we, you know, got a bunch of help and like I think somebody gave them money. They were going to do some protest. I think they may have actually carried it out, did some sort of a rally or whatever. And uh yeah, cuz one of the guys sh- like some woman shows up speaking with a Russian accent and a bodyguard that doesn't ever say anything, but stands like six foot seven or something like really that didn't scream to you, Russian interference, (laughs) but Oh, those were different days. Nobody knew this was before 20. This was before 2016. Um, But there are people that still believe that the Russians gave Trump the win and that Trump was a Russian asset, even though there's no evidence of it. They believe in the P tape, right? That, the hookers urinating on the mattress or whatever uh, that Obama slept on and Trump paid them to do it and all this. Like, this is the compromising material that the Russians had on. They believe all of this stuff still out of the Steele dossier. The whole thing has been has fallen apart. It, it's all lies. And they use this stuff in order to keep the surveillance on the Trump campaign. Can you imagine if a Republican did it to a Democrat? You don't have to, actually, because they did. It was Nixon, and he got impeached. Well, he was about to be impeached. He resigned. He did not technically get impeached. But he was about to get impeached. But it's different when you're a Democrat. Two different sets of rules. I'm done pretending that there is one set, and I'm going to shame them into following the one that they say they follow. They don't. There's another set of rules they play by. And their set of rules that they play by lets them do this sort of stuff. News is next.